This week we wrap up our sermon series on outflow. In finances, the money that you take in is inflow and the money that goes out is outflow. In that way, God has inflowed. God has filled us up with his love and now we respond. We outflow to God. We outflow to our families and our friends and our neighbor. But to love your neighbor, you need to know your neighbor. That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're talking about what does the Bible even mean when it says, love your neighbor as yourself. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, December 11th, 2011. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our sermon this week is actually an extension. It's part two. It's kind of a sermon series inside a sermon series as we talk about loving your neighbor And we'll kind of get to that in a second. Our sermon series that we're in, the bigger picture sermon series, is outflow. And just like finances, inflow means there's money going in. Outflow means there's stuff going out. We'll talk about that in a second. And what we said is God fills you up. And if you'd picture it like a dartboard, God fills you up. And then you respond to the next closest things like the rings. So you respond naturally to God. You naturally respond to your neighbor, I mean your friends and family, and then to your neighbors and then to the world. The problem that comes in, and we talked about that in our grow groups, is what happens if you skip a ring? Um, Naturally, you're going to think that that person is a hypocrite. And what I mean by that is, if I say I really love God, and you meet me at work, at your work, and we're working together, and I say I love God, I go to church every week, and then uh, we hang out, we really get along, and then you find out that I just say belittling things about my spouse, naturally, you're not going to trust me. Because you think to yourself, if you can't love and be concerned about the people who should be closest to you, there's no way you really are authentic in loving and caring about me. I'll give you an example. Teenagers, you're going to run into this. When you're a kid, um, you're going to run into uh, friends or people that you know that aren't very respectful of their parents. And this happens to everybody for a little bit. But then there's certain kids that always are belittling and always throwing their parents kind of under the bus. And you run into that. From my observation, this is only observational. I looked back as I was writing this, and I thought I could picture guys that would be like that, or, and I could picture girls that were like that with their parents, and I don't have any correspondence with any of them now. None. All the people I still talk to, and there's, I mean, a half dozen or more, all the people I still talk to had a decent relationship or a good relationship with their parents. And so observationally, maybe this is just anecdotally, you look back and you think, I think it's because I know if they care about their parents and they say they care about me and we hang out, I can believe them. And when people say, hey, we're friends, and they talk down against their parents or their grandparents, and, and they're disrespectful to people they should care about, um, I think deep down, you know, I, and maybe you should think that. I can't really trust this person. So that's what we're talking about. But ultimately, we, were ta- we finally got to the ring of your neighbors. So you love God, you respond to God in worship. We know who God is. Then you respond to your family. And um, sometimes you know too much about your family, but that's where we need God's help to respond properly. And then finally, we get to our neighbors. And the question was, uh, as, we looked in the, as we looked at our sermons for today, I mean last week, the question was this. Uh, it was just before the parable of the Good Samaritan and a man, an expert of the law, came to Jesus, and he said, um, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus says, how do you summarize the law? And this guy was a genius. He took two parts from different parts of Scripture, and he came up with this conclusion. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The one we focused on last week was love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love God, and we talked about that the first week. You can't love a God you don't know. You can't do it. 
You can't love a spouse you don't know. You can't love a girlfriend you don't know. You can't love a movie you've never seen. But can you love a neighbor you don't know? And the conclusion we came up with, at least I think, was you can't love a neighbor that you don't know. So we spent some time looking, talking about your geographic neighbors. Do you know your geographic neighbors? And are you willing to know something about them so you can show love to them? So we gave you an opportunity. We gave that tic-tac-toe board, if you remember. Do you know your eight closest geographical neighbors? And do you know something about them? Do you know a fact? Do you know a hope or a hurt? The guys who came up with this, a guy named Brian Mavis, I went out to lunch with him, and he was showing me this, and I thought it was pretty cool. So then I brought it all the way back down here. Uh, he calls it the sheet of shame. So if you, if you I, I didn't put mine up in like, I know all my neighbors because I don't. Um, but in this day and age where it's like the bat cave, we said you open the garage door, you shoot inside, the back shuts down, and then you take off your costume and go to work. Um, and you hang out and you kind of um, hibernate for the whole weekend and you got six foot fences. In this day and age, it's unlikely, unless you've known, unless something happened on your street or something like that, that you would know all those neighbors. So don't be embarrassed that you don't know your neighbors. Um, don't be embarrassed that you don't know a hope or a hurt. Don't be embarrassed you don't know facts about them. But you should be motivated to say, if I really want to love my neighbors, I probably should learn who my neighbors are and what's going on in their life. That was the whole point of that. So you can go back and say, it is the sheet of shame. So we didn't have you take it out and hand it in or anything like that. But the gist, if you look at these connections, if you'd summarize the whole law, and Jesus does this when he's in the upper room, and he's, it's Monday, Thursday, he's getting ready to start the Lord's Supper, and he said, a new command I give you, love one another. So he summarizes the whole law in a single word, really love. And you can see this connection here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the connecting object here, the connecting verb we have is love. Now, I Man, it feels like it's, I'm a little heady this week since I tried to explain multiplication to four-year-olds. <laughs> not every week is good, especially with the children's lesson. You try, and then you think, maybe that's not where it's going. So in that theme of talking about math and uh, talking about things that you, you want to forget about in school, does anyone remember, um, and you can because the answer's right there, a transitive verb. Love is, when you read it scripturally, is a transitive verb, and I don't want to bore you to death here because um, I have to study English and stuff all this time. But a transitive verb just means it takes an object. Hit, for example. That's a transitive verb. You have to hit something, otherwise it's not a hit. You can't say, well, um, my brother hit me, and like, oh, where'd he hit you? Well, he didn't. He swung. Now, that's a swing. A hit is actual connection. It needs an object to do something. So you hit a ball, or you hit, we'll just let you think in the example there. An intransitive verb is like be or is. So René Descartes, he was a philosopher, a French philosopher, and you may only know him because um, the death of Descartes, I, can't, I think that's the painting where he's in a bathtub where he's dead. He got uh, murdered, I believe. But that's probably the only time you know Descartes. But he did say something very famous. Cognito ergo sum. So I think, therefore, I am. So that means, that's an intransitive verb. So you can be, you don't need an object. Where am I going with this? Um, you can go to Alaska, buy, in, buy an igloo. I don't know if they sell igloos. If it's really tricked out. It's, in Finland, they probably sell igloos because they have like the ice hotel. I think that's in Iceland or something. So you get this really nice little place, uh, this cabin in the middle of nowhere. You can be. You don't need an object to do that. You don't need anyone else around to do that. You can just be. Can you go to the middle of nowhere and live in a cabin and love? Biblically, no. If you look at this definition, as God says, um, how do I respond and how do I live, you need an object to love. 
You can't just love. What do you love? I, I'm just loving. Well, what do you mean? What, do you, what are you loving? Because it's a transitive verb. It needs an object. So the object, uh, we're going to shoot back. The object we're looking at here, <laughs> they're like, I thought I got done with this sophomore year in high school. Um, no one likes to diagram sentences, so we're totally done with that, and I won't use the word transitive verb again. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There are three objects here that are loved, right? And I've got to make sure I don't say the word, but you're loving the Lord your God. So that's number one. You're loving the Lord your God. You're also loving your neighbor. And the third one? Yourself. That's assumed. You're loving yourself. All these are connected. There's only one, though, naturally. The way we're born in this world in a sinful state, there's only one of those objects that we naturally love. One. And if you've had babies, you know babies love themselves. Babies are concerned about their own food. They're concerned about their own comfort. They're not worried about your comfort, even as a mother. And obviously, they grow to love you. They don't, they're not born. A baby is not born loving God. That doesn't happen. So naturally, we love ourselves. In fact, we love ourselves a lot, a whole lot. And we go through a lot of expense and time and effort to make sure we're comfortable, we're happy, that the world around us, um, and some people it just revolves around them, that the world around you is comfortable and makes sense. What really bothered me, and I'm being frank here, is as you read this, you think, okay, I like myself a lot, and I go through a lot of effort, and you do too. I don't want to make it sound like... That guy's an egomaniac. Um, you like yourselves a lot, and what I mean is you make sure you're fed and that you're comfortable. If things are uncomfortable, you fix it. Um, you do that. Once in a while, you think about someone else, but generally, um, it's only if your needs are met. When you look at that and you ask yourself, how can I possibly love God more than myself? How can you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Does that bother you at all? For a long time, this bothered me. Because I think, how can, if I like myself a lot, how can you like God more? Does that make sense? How, how do you do that? I think I've got a solution that makes sense. Have you ever um, seen someone and you're annoyed by their selfishness? Or you're annoyed by someone's materialism. Uh, you're annoyed by um, something that they do or say. You're annoyed that someone is really greedy. Um, does that bother you when you watch TV? Or you know someone is really vain? Does that ever bother you? Everyone's like, no, I, I, I've never had problems like that. That's great because you're in heaven right now because all sin is gone. Normally, though, uh, normal human beings, there's a certain thing about certain people that really bugs you. Maybe someone who uh, drinks too much, someone who's irresponsible, someone who's late and it drives you crazy. There's a phrase that says, and I think it's true, many times the thing we hate most about other people, and do you know how this finishes? Is the thing we hate most about ourselves. We like ourselves a lot. We go through great effort to make sure we're comfortable and we're happy. But do you love yourself completely? Everything about you. Do you wake up and say, I am so good looking. I am so smart. I am so rich. I am so funny. I am so humble. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, you can't do that, can you? Because this is where I think it makes some sense. Deep down, as much as we like ourselves, 
as much as we like ourselves, and you think love your neighbor as yourself, as much as you like yourself, as much effort as you go through, there's always something. It's your physical appearance. It's your intelligence. It's your work ethic. It's an addiction. Sometimes it's the dark parts of your heart that you know about that no one else knows about. These are the things that bother you. What is God asking you to do? He says, you can love me totally. There's no ulterior motive when God's involved. There's no hidden secrets. You cannot out-love God. You can look at yourself and, and feel sick when you know the things you've done or the things you've said and the people you've hurt. You can say, I like myself a lot, but there's always this dark corner of my life. Is there any dark corner in God's life? No. And so God says, and I think it now makes sense, you can love me. You can't love yourself completely, but I want you to love me fully, all in, lean, totally committed, and you don't have to worry about being burned because I'm always faithful, I'm always loving. I can't love myself completely. You can't love yourself completely, but God loves you completely. The Bible describes it this way. This is how God demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. So in the lowest of our low points, Christ died for us. So we didn't have to get all dressed up and look wonderful, and then God says, all right, you'll do, I'll die for you. The sins we don't tell anybody else, the sins we don't even want to admit to ourselves, the dark parts of our heart God is already aware of, and God said, I'm going to die for you. When I collected baseball cards, I would say to my dad, hey, I got this new one, it's worth 22 bucks or $5 or something like that. And every time, and I mean every time, even if I said it was like 37 cents, he'd said, yeah, if someone's willing to pay for that. Every time. And so he, he convinced me that I shouldn't make a living investing in baseball cards because they're, they're really not worth that much. But, so I have these baseball cards, and this, in my mind, was the worth because if I was willing to pay for it, my question to you is, how much are you worth? And I think the easy thing to do in this world is to look and, and look at your high points and we talked about the gifts you have, the abilities you have, and say, this is where my value is. My value is in how handsome I am or how pretty I am. My value is in uh, how smart I am. My, my value is at work. Some people find value in how they work. Some people find value in uh, the things, the ideas they have, the stuff they have, the house they have, the car they have, the clothes you wear. How tight and, and how secure is that view of yourself? If your whole life is wrapped up in how well you do in school, what happens when you get your first F? And your whole life is wrapped up in the stuff you have, what happens when you go bankrupt? Or your kids, and your kids turn out that they totally betray you for a while. How, if your whole life is wrapped up into that, how secure is that view of yourself? Now imagine, just imagine it here. If you live your life, I think you can live pretty securely and think, I, I'm pretty good. If your life is about here, I put my, my, my hope in my looks or my stuff or wherever, and this can always fall and can rock. But what happens if you say, actually, my value is in a God who says, um, you have peace. My value is in a God who says, I'm forgiven. My value is a God who loves me completely and he knows everything about me. My value is in a God who said, I'm willing to die for you. Suddenly your view of yourself, and this is the strange thing as you trust in God, your view of yourself goes up to about here. And not in this um, arrogant way, but one that says, God says, I have value. 
and it doesn't matter about what I look like, what I have, where I work, or anything like that. Where I have value is who God says I am. And God says I'm his child. He loved me and was willing to die for me. What does that do then as you talk about loving your neighbor, which is what we're talking about today? Instead of being down here and saying, I've, I've done enough, suddenly your view of loving your neighbor has moved up to a whole new level. Um, the challenge, though, when you talk about loving your neighbor scripturally is that the, the stakes are pretty high, aren't they? If you look at the example God gives, he died for us. Or 1 Corinthians 13, if you've ever been to a wedding, because most of you, I'm guessing, has been to a wedding. You read this, and doesn't this kind of get intimidating a little bit? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Actually, let's just put your name there and then see if it becomes intimidating how much we're supposed to love our neighbor. I'll just put my own name. Jared is patient. Jared is kind. You can put your own mind and name in your head. Um, he does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He's not easily angry. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jared does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jared never fails. Do you feel yourself kind of like wanting to crawl under the seat then? When you talk about how God expects us to love? And the thing with love, there's so much to it. The thing with love, as I tried to explain to kids, is it's not just doing the negative thing, avoiding the negative things. You could do that in Alaska. You could go get your igloo. You could live out. You're like, I'm the greatest neighbor anyone has ever had because I have never hurt or harmed my neighbor. I've never murdered anyone as you hang out in your igloo, right? I think Martin Luther got it best when he explains the Ten Commandments. And for the Fifth Commandment, for example, he says, you shall not murder. And they say, well, what does that mean? He says, don't hurt or harm your neighbor. You go, got it, done. That's not that hard, I don't think. Being, uh, to actually hurt people and do negative things to people, I think, and avoiding that, I don't think is that difficult. But then he adds, but help and be a friend and help him in every bodily need. And you're like, whoa. Wait a second. Because do you like playing games without rules? I don't. Do you like driving on a road with no lines? Have you ever done that when they just finished it? And you're like, this is really creepy. I don't like that. Roads are much wider when they don't have lines, if you've never noticed that. So you're driving, and you're like, where am I supposed to go? This is uncomfortable. I don't like this. This is how it is as a Christian. God doesn't say just love this much. He doesn't say make sure you stay in the lines. God says love, and he leaves it open. It's like playing games without a rule. And sometimes I think as Christians, our focus, and it makes sense, wants to be on people's spiritual things, doesn't it? You say, okay, I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to pray for my neighbor. I want to make sure I'll give them some Bible tracts, and uh, I want to make sure that they're right with God. But I think we forget a pretty important aspect. If you think your main job for your neighbor is to pray for them, uh, I think you should read the parable of the Good Samaritan one more time. This man's hurt. He's on the side of the road, and the Samaritan walks along. And does he tuck some Bible tracts and then just say a prayer like, boy, I hope you get better? And then he takes off. Is that what he does? You're talking about a hurting neighbor. You're like, hey, I'll pray for you. And they're like, yeah, I'm really in trouble. You got it. Big time. All right, I'll even tell my pastor. Is that what the Samaritan did? He's like, hey, bro, I'll tell my pastor. I mean, this looks really bad. So I'll tell, I'll tell like six people. And we'll all be praying. Seven, it's the holy number. We're, gonna tell, we're all going to pray. And it's going to be shooting down. But do you ever think that the answer to those prayers are sometimes you? As you talk about, how do I love my neighbor? This guy, um, 
and no doubt in an uncomfortable situation, said, I'm willing to stop where someone else was robbed, which I, that's pretty difficult to do. Um, I'm willing to um, give up my vehicle, which was his donkey, and put this other guy on it. I'm willing to give up cash. I'm willing to give up time. If you're really going to love your neighbor, if you're really going to show what this means, if you're going to really outflow, which means you've been flowed in, and outflow is expenses, it's going to cost you something, isn't it? Can you love someone and it not cost you anything? Can I pay for my child's college education and it not cost me anything? Can you do anything in someone else's life and it not cost either time or effort or money or opportunities because you wanted to do something else and you end up missing out on that thing? So it would seem... It would seem if you're really loving people, you're actually going to get, it's going to shrink because you're always in outflow. If I always pend out my cash, so I get this much inflow and I'm always sending it out, eventually I'm going to be broke, right? And it seems spiritually and uh, before God, I'm going to be completely broke. Here's the irony of the whole deal, and this is our last thing we'll look at. This is inside your bulletin. You do something for one person one time, and it, you can sense that. You feel good, right? You put some money in to help someone out. You give some food to someone. You feel good about that. But what happens, though, when you start doing it more regularly, and instead of just some project, you actually work with real people? A life of service for people, life of serving people for God, means your heart is going to grow. And that's ultimately what God is looking for. He says, uh, you're rooted up here. I want you to bring your view of your neighbor up here, and I want you to be able to um, have the confidence to pour out your life into your neighbor, pour out your love into your neighbor, pour out the expense into your neighbor, because I want to transform you. I want to make you someone different than you are today. I want to make you someone new. Part of the things that we look at, I'm a pastor, I get to work in Word and Sacraments. Part of the things that I get to do is um, help you grow in your walk of faith. So I don't feel bad when I talk about money. God says he's given you money, he says some of this should go to the church, some go to support your family. I don't feel bad about that. God wants this for you. I don't feel bad about explaining God wants you to grow in your faith, so you should be part of a grow group, or you should be doing devotions, and you should be growing in your way. I don't feel bad about that. In fact, I think this is my job. God also wants you to be people who serve and love, and he wants your heart to grow in that sense, a one that knows who Christ is, and because that can flow out. So we have opportunities, and um, usually I don't have commercials at the end of something, but a couple of things that we're doing that you have a chance to do is we gave out the reusable shopping bags. You can meet your friend or meet your neighbor, and hopefully you can bring some food that ultimately goes to the Douglas County Task Force. Next week, we're going to make a 1,000 lunches. That's the plan. So instead of our normal time, we're, it's going to be our normal time, I should say, we're going to have a short devotion, and then we're going to assemble a 1,000 lunches and send them up to a homeless shelter up in Denver. I think this is good because we don't get anything from this. It's not like giving a thousand lunches to the neighborhood right around us, hoping they maybe go to our church or something like that. The people who are homeless in Denver are not going to be coming down to our church. So why do we do this? Because we want to help people. We want to love people. and We want to show them care. Last thing, but I think we're done with them, is we gave thank you notes to all the staff. There's 80 staff that works here. And you had a chance uh, before church, we had some extra time to write a thank you. Thanks for what you do. We're not saying come to our church or anything like that, but just thanks for what you do for the community and thanks for letting us share your building. And then we put in our Starbucks card and we, we give it to them for Christmas and hopefully they can say, uh, this is a good thing. What do we get from this? I don't know. But you have a chance 
to say this, is an out, this costs our church something. This costs us our time. It costs us our money. We could be doing other things with this, but we think, you know what, this is worthwhile to try and express our faith in a way like that. You don't have to do any of these things, but it would be great to see you um, take some of those shopping bags. It'd be great to see you next week as we assemble these lunches. And hopefully the Lord, uh, through his Holy Spirit, is transforming your heart as one who is forgiven, who is worth it, and Christ died for. Amen.